0: Number 17 has been asked that we mark that and certainly delighted to do so and use that a bit later in the service time this morning. As mentioned previously, how blessed we each are. The opportunity that's been given us this Lord's Day morning, the first Sunday in May 2013, and in so doing, to yet look forward to that occasion of our gospel meeting beginning a mere week from today. Brother Tom Holland will be with us, and for that we're certainly looking a great deal forward. And let each of us continue our prayers and continue to distribute flyers and continue in other works as we make preparation for that time of gospel meeting. The Pippin congregation for a number of years has had a rather noteworthy set of speakers, a noteworthy set of sound gospel preachers for our gospel meeting, and certainly we're looking forward to Brother Holland being with us as well. A gentleman well known to many of us for his many, many decades of service proclaiming the gospel in the Middle Tennessee part of the state of Tennessee. This morning as we come to this part of our service today, you might have noted in the bulletin that the title of the lesson today is a mere two words that might be described like this, I suppose... That verb suppose carries with it such an interesting element of discussion and such a powerful reality in so many ways. And I would invite us to think about its usage this morning. Specifically, its usage as it relates to salvation, as it relates to service to God. Maybe some comments introductory in nature would certainly be worth our while. It's easy to suppose things, isn't it? You and I are free to suppose any number of things that we might like. Suppose the law of gravity were not as it is. You and I know what things could happen if one were to attempt to suppose that it was not there. On the other hand, suppose that there were a hundred or yea a thousand or yea even more different organizations which in fact were all pleasing unto God. It's easy to see the point, is that You and I are free to suppose anything we like. It may or may not be true. In fact, there may be little truth relative to the supposition. It is true in the world of academia, a world in which I have found my profession, that it's easy to suppose things. Scholars can lecture and discuss for hours on end, supposing what in fact may not at all be true. May I submit to you, though, in the world of religion, such as foolish and needless, suppositions, as we shall learn throughout the course of our lesson today, can, in fact, bring a fair amount of danger, a fair amount of concern, a fair amount of, in fact, that which is awful. As we begin to develop those thoughts, I thought a definition might well first be in order. If you simply take a dictionary and look up the word suppose, S-U-P-P-O-S-E, you'll find the following. It has several statements of definition. The first might well be this one, to assume to be true for argument's sake. Quite often an individual who perhaps is involved in debate with another person of an opposite viewpoint will suppose something as a means of showing the incorrectness of the other person's argument. Another definition, to believe or to think, regardless whether the idea is true or not. Third definition, to consider as a possibility, that is to say, to expect. Those three definitions, those three usages of the word suppose, are all somewhat interesting, but it's the second one that I would invite you to consider with me for the remainder of the lesson this morning. Isn't it true that it's entirely possible that there can be some ill-advised and rather foolish suppositions? Those parents whose son or daughter just got his or her driver's license and they suppose that he or she will be fine driving on their first day in Nashville have probably made a very foolish supposition. That youngster needs time to learn the rules of the road, to implement the usage of a car safely... Nashville, Tennessee, with the traffic that's there, is probably not the best place to get one's feet wet driving. On the other hand, what about that coach of an athletic team who oftentimes makes assumptions about a certain person's playing skills or a certain tactical strategy to use in a game, often supposing that will work and often the team loses by a large margin. The foolishness of the coach made a bad decision. The supposition wasn't true. Maybe another set of ideas, that very bottom one. May I submit to you that it can be a very foolish thing to make some suppositions. And this morning, I would invite us to let the Bible speak to us about suppose. As we begin, I have compiled a set of passages in which the New Testament makes usage of the verb suppose. If you and I simply pull out our concordance and we look through the New Testament and we find those passages, those occurrences, those episodes in which the word suppose is employed, we will find these. I believe as we study them, somewhat quickly admittedly, that the conclusions will be self-evident. First of all, let's revisit Matthew chapter 20. You recall that the Lord was speaking a parable on that occasion, a very noteworthy parable. It was that parable often called the laborers in the vineyard. Early in the morning, the master, in fact, went out, tried to find some laborers for the vineyard, sent them into the vineyard to work, and he promised that I shall pay you a penny. At nine o'clock, that is to say at the third hour, he went out and found some additional laborers, also promising them that they would be paid at the end of the day. At the 12 o'clock hour, that is to say the 6th hour, and then again at the ninth hour, he did the same thing. And finally at the 11th hour, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he went, found more laborers, commissioned them to work in the vineyard, promising them, of course, that he would pay them at the day's end. At the end of the day, the workers came together for the pay that was now to be received by them. And you'll notice that something interesting happened. He began to pay them in the order beginning from end of the day back to beginning. So he paid those first and he gave them a penny. At this point, it seems that those who had worked much longer that day began to get very excited. They supposed, the text says, that they would be paid more than the penny to which they had originally agreed. Notice they supposed something. They supposed it. The time came for them to be paid. They received a penny just like they'd agreed to. They murmured, they were upset, they were a bit angry it seems, and they even questioned the master. He said, did you not agree with me for the penny? They supposed something, but it turned out to be ill-advised, didn't it? It turned out to not have anything related to the truth in it. Maybe another example. On that first occasion, the supposition was ill-advised. Let's try another one. In Mark chapter 6, The Lord had just finished feeding the 5,000 with but five loaves and two fishes, a majestic miracle to be sure. However, after the crowd had been sent away, the Lord in fact told the apostles to, by usage of boat, ship that is, go to the other side of the lake. The Lord Himself devoted some time to prayer, some time to reflection. And later that night, He proceeded to walk on the water as He too attempted to cross that sea. It was the fourth watch of the night, the inspired text tells us. And as they were rowing hard, they espied what to them looked like a ghost, a spirit. And the text says they supposed that that's what it was. They supposed it. They didn't know. They supposed that it was. But of course, after he got a little closer and they heard his voice, they recognized and learned then that it was the master himself. But their supposition was ill-advised. It turned out to be incorrect. Yet one more time, this supposition was fairly easy for human beings to pursue, but it was not correct. Maybe a third example. In Luke 2 verse 44, Joseph and Mary had taken their 12-year-old son to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And we each remember that during the time there, they had undergone the necessary matters and had begun their journey back homeward, supposing the boy to be amongst the group. They supposed Jesus was there. They traveled some three days and learned that He wasn't. And as we appreciate the finality of all of it, of course their supposition turned out to be completely ill-advised. The supposition was not true. Jesus was not in the number. He, in fact, they found Him back in the temple discussing with the doctors of the law and others, asking them questions and also answering questions. By this point, maybe the pattern is becoming obvious. What if we consider another one in the 20th chapter of John? As we near the close of the gospel accounts, on this occasion the Lord had already been crucified and His body had already been placed. We now notice that Mary came to the scene wherein the body had been lain and she was exceedingly bothered and agitated because she did not find the body. She began to weep. One gentleman that she saw, the text says she supposing him to be the gardener. She was carrying on conversation with Jesus himself, but she supposed him to be the gardener. Her supposition was wrong. Her supposition was ill-advised the Lord was no gardener. He was the Son of God that had been raised. One more time, the supposition was an ill-advised one. It was somewhat foolish, wasn't it? Maybe as we look at the fifth one, our mind turns to the day of Pentecost when here the apostles themselves had been baptized in the Holy Spirit earlier that day. And as we well recall in the unfolding of those events, they began to speak in languages they had never learned. Verses 5 and following, they proclaimed with power and majesty and might the unsearchable nature of the Lord. However, we find something remarkable. In verses 15, 16, and 17, those who there heard them supposed that they were drunken. Suppose that they were inebriated with wine. One more time, their supposition was false. They weren't inebriated with wine. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they spoke that day the powerful message of the birthday of the church. The supposition was ill-advised. Maybe yet another example taken from Acts 14. The first missionary journey was well underway. Paul and his companions had journeyed to the location I've indicated at Lystra. And we find there that Paul's preaching, as it so often was, was not well-received. In fact, they dragged him out of the city and stoned him. They thought they had killed the man. In fact, the language is interesting, supposing him to be dead. They didn't know for sure. They supposed that they had killed him. But in fact, after they turned and walked away, Paul got up, went back and preached some more. Oh, the power we see of supposition. One more time, it was wrong. One more time, it was ill-advised. The ill-advised character of that supposition, maybe it leads us to two more. In Acts 16, we find on this occasion as the gospel had come to Philippi, Paul and Silas found themselves in prison due to the preaching of the gospel and an earthquake occurred at midnight. We remember as that earthquake occurred, it jarred loose the shackles that bound them and swell as opened the doors of the prison and the jailer, supposing the prisoners to have fled was prepared to take his own life. The jailer supposed something. Paul was quick to say, We are all here. Do thyself no harm. You see, the jailer had made a supposition, and for the seventh time now, just like the ones before him, he was incorrect. Maybe the final example taken from Acts 27:13. At this point, the apostle Paul, the peerless one, had himself been committed to the capital city of Rome. He had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he had to go. We all remember that as he boarded the ship and the various and sundry pieces of information were developed, it was Paul who said, this journey shall be with much damage. Paul knew what was about to happen, but you'll notice that the sailors would hear none of it. They supposed that the winds were favorable, and they supposed that the journey would be safe, and so off they journeyed. There was a shipwreck, not more than a few verses later, where the entire ship was lost, but all 276 people aboard came safely to the island of Malta. Eight times, eight times we have found usage of the word suppose, and every time the person who supposed was wrong. Every time the person who made the supposition did so in an ill-advised way, may I submit to you that maybe that leads us to some final lessons that we'll use to consume the remainder of our time this morning. First of all, these review statements. In each of the instances that you and I just noted, the suppositions turned out to be incorrect. They turned out to certainly be ill-advised. And that led me to state in capital letters the following. It ought not be the case that you and I make suppositions with respect to important matters. When matters are certainly of eternal importance, well, there's no business for supposing. That's incredibly dangerous, isn't it? For human beings tend to be wrong when they Suppose. Isn't it true human beings can so often be misled and deceived with regard to supposition? It was said in Jeremiah 29 that the heart is deceitful above all things. You and I then, when we suppose, might be entirely wrong. For those reasons, look at the bottom. Especially that text of what Joseph and Mary supposed, that Jesus was in the number when in fact He wasn't. It is in distinction to all of that, I would invite you to look at Second Peter chapter 1. The very last observations on that slide. According, this is beginning in verse 3, According, as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, but hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren... "...give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Peter stated just the exact opposite of suppose. He said, make your calling and election sure, make it certain. And isn't it true that it should be your goal and mine To appreciate the certainty of salvation, the certainty of biblical truth, and to not rest on supposition. For all those reasons, perhaps some suppositions and some thoughts about them would be well worth our continued consideration. Isn't it true that the suppositions that are the most often made use of in religion are entirely needless? And so often, they're entirely pointless. Let's develop that thought a little bit more carefully in the following way. You and I know that in the physical realm, there are occasions in which we don't have all the information, and we may have to suppose. But when it comes to matters of religion, when it comes to matters of eternal destiny and truth, suppositions are needless. Consider these passages. In Luke 1, verse number 4, at the very preamble, if you will, to the book of Luke, wasn't it true that Luke in writing made observation that these things are certain? What Luke recorded wasn't done, if you please, in a corner. These things were known to Theophilus, and Luke took the liberty by inspiration to record them. You know these things. When you and I thus read the gospel accounts, these are not suppositions. When it says the Lord did something, He did it. And when He gave commandment relative to something, that's His commandment and His absolute proclamation. You'll notice beyond that, in 2 Timothy 1.12, those famous words of Paul near the close of his life. He said, "...for the which cause I also suffer these things." Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Paul, are you supposing? It's far, far from it. Paul knew the one in whom he had placed his trust, and he knew the one in whom he had committed the fullness of his eternal spirit. Paul said, I know whom I have believed. Beyond that, we notice in 2 Peter 1... That very text you and I just noted a moment ago. To you and me has been given the fullness of divine revelation. All things that pertain unto life and godliness. How many then have not been revealed? None. How much of it has been revealed? All of it. All things that pertain to life and godliness. You and I thus have no need to suppose if we have all the information, if we have all the details, if we have all the facts and figures, Maybe in light of that, the last passage in First John 5 verse 13. As the Apostle John neared the close of that first John letter, it is still a rather amazing thing that he directed to these individuals. And one of the things about the group to which he wrote was that they gave thought to certain kinds of special knowledge. Certain people are blessed to know certain things, others unfortunately do not, but those that are blessed are privileged. In verse 13 of 1 John 5, John simply said, These things are written to you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life. John said you can know that you have eternal life. There's no need to suppose it. There's no need to make facts or figures relative to dreaming about it. It is possible to know it. For that reason, our world is in such a conundrum so many religious problems because there's too many suppositions when we need to rely on the truth and the facts of the blessed Word of God. Those suppositions perhaps bring us to this next observation. Just as truly as we noticed those eight eight examples before, that in every instance the supposition was wrong or at least ill-advised, sometimes isn't it true that suppositions have catastrophic results? I've listed, in fact, one example. You and I, it seems, far too often find on the news that some airplane has crashed. Some particular matter has gone wrong. Suppose that there was an engineer in the designing of this aircraft, and he designed it, in fact, to be able to transport 100,000 pounds, and yet it was 150,000 pounds on the plane. Is it likely that it will go well? Is his supposition a good one? Obviously not. For it to carry a full 50 percent more than the engineer designed it would have tragic results. No wonder our engineers are trained well, schooled well, educated well, so that they understand the forces and the physics involved and can design them with safety. Again though, may we say, Suppositions can have tragic results. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide how tragic things then can be in the realm of religion. Suppositions, in fact, that might be described like this. There are those that suppose that any and all claims to faith are as good as any other. There are those that make the claim that any faith is reasonable, accepted by God and productive toward arrival at heaven. But that is an interesting supposition in light of verses like this. The word of God says there is one faith, Hebrews, or rather Ephesians four verse five. One. Is it liberty for you and for me to set aside the declaration of that passage and to think on our own supposing that there's any number of acceptable ones? One faith. You'll notice that that one faith is highlighted in passages like Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9. As Paul addressed those words to the churches of Galatia, it was to them that he said, "...though we are an angel from heaven..." preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you have received, let him be accursed. There was a unison, a unity, a uniqueness, if you please, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not to be tampered with, altered, changed, modified in any way. The uniqueness of that gospel... Highlighted again in that famous refrain of Ephesians 4, there is one faith. Isn't it true in Jude verse 3, near the end of the New Testament period, that there we find Jude, another inspired writer who said, to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. And the inspired language is very telling, isn't it? This was that faith, not new, not a newfangled one, but it was once for all time delivered to the saints. Never any greater revelations than it, never any ongoing revelations. It was once for all time delivered. Isn't it true then with respect to that faith, how special, how remarkable it is that you and I can rest assured, not supposing anything but knowing that that one faith is the one faith of God. It's the one He approves and the one that He has described. But yet let's look at yet another supposition that we sometimes encounter. A supposition like this one. Churches, how many are there? As you and I know, in the United States alone, Christian recognized churches now number about a thousand. A thousand different brands, a thousand different kinds. They teach different things. They worship in different ways. They have mutually exclusive doctrines. And worldwide, the number is a staggering approximately 34,000. 34,000 different Christian organizations question... What does the New Testament say? It's easy to suppose that all of them are right, that all of them are appropriate and noteworthy and approved by God, but are they? Wouldn't it be tragic to arrive at the day of judgment having supposed that and then to find out that it was not the case? In Ephesians 4 verse 4, the verse just prior to the one we noted earlier, in that very famous platform of unity, Paul said there is one body and one Spirit, even as you're called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Seven ones proclaimed and declared. First one on the list, there is one body. We know from passages also in Colossians and Ephesians that that word body has reference to the church. For example, He is the head of the body, "...the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence." Colossians 1.18. Ephesians 22 and 23. "...and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all." To then speak about the body, and here Paul says there's but one of them. There is but one church. And didn't the Lord say, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. It is that very body purchased with the blood of Christ, Acts 20, 28. And it is the very one spoken of in Ephesians five twenty three. He, speaking of Christ, is the Savior of the body. He did not say Savior of the bodies, but Savior of the body. The uniqueness of that body. Let us revisit the thought of our supposition Would it not then be dangerous to suppose that all these organizations are acceptable when God Himself said there's but one? What about yet another one? The declaration of what is it that saves an individual? One of the things that you and I encounter is this reliance upon some element in belief. Perhaps you've watched television, televangelists, various services or maybe someone has handed you a tract at some point that reaches its conclusion and says, if you'll just accept Christ into your heart and pray the supposed prayer that often follows that you will be saved. That's a fine supposition. But may I say to you, there's not a single example in all the 27 books of the New Testament where anybody ever did that and they were said to be saved. Not once. Not once. What a dangerous supposition. Surely we would not then desire to hang our eternal destiny upon a supposition. What does the Bible then tell us for sure led to somebody's salvation? Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. I'll put my faith on what the Lord said, won't you? Jesus said that belief is important, but that's not all there is. One must, in fact, acquiesce to all that the Lord taught. And so we notice the reliance there in addition made mention of as it relates to baptism. And we notice the other examples of the book of Acts in which that idea is proclaimed yet again. Ten times in the book of Acts, explicit examples are given of those who were converted to Christ and all ten times they were baptized. Not one time was a person not baptized and yet said to be saved. Not once. If that's significant and surely it is... Aren't we then in a position to appreciate passages like James 2.19? There it is expressly said the devil's believe. My friend, if it's true belief is enough to say the devil's going to heaven. But that's utter nonsense because we know the devil is not going to be saved. The book of Revelation portrays that he and all the henchmen that follow him will be cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone, and forevermore shall it be, Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. We thus know belief alone is not enough to make one into a condition of being saved. But furthermore, we appreciate that many saviors, there are many individuals who have walked on this planet earth throughout the millennia that have passed. And of course, there's many walking on the surface of this planet even as we speak. How many of them can be Savior? We know that there's various and sundry proclamations of Confucius and Zoroaster and Buddha and various others. And we are not in any way insulting those gentlemen. They tried to help the human family. They tried to encourage in ways that were noteworthy. But did they die for anybody? And will their blood cleanse any man's sins? They won't. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. The uniqueness of the cleansing blood of our Savior. Maybe asks us to note that all these suppositions are not only dangerous, they are eternally damning. What about that next one? We hinted at it earlier. I'm sure like myself, you've had discussions with those who have little interest in baptism. I'll be the first to say, baptism is not the only part in God's plan of salvation. There are other parts too, but we must not overlook the thing that the Lord said is required. In every instance that we find it mentioned in the New Testament, we find it as an extraordinarily powerful thing. It's the time on which a person contacts the cleansing blood of Christ. That blood isn't cleansed in belief, it isn't cleansed in repentance, it isn't cleansed in confession, but it is said to be contacted in baptism. Read Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. As we then think about the nature of baptism, we longingly are excited about the thought of simply telling it the way the Lord did. No wonder He then said in Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even in the end of the world. If baptism wasn't important, why did the Lord command it to be taught every nation around the world until the end of time? It is important. What a lovely condition in which we see a person acquiesce his life, relinquishing control of it to the master, simply buried, putting the old man of sin, in the sense it's died, burying it and rising to walk in units of life. Perhaps two more. The supposition about the number that will be saved. I believe it was earlier today that Joy made reference to someone whom he had heard made statement that virtually everybody is going to be saved that God is a God of love and He will send no one to hell. That's an interesting supposition in light of what the New Testament declares. It's true that our God is a God of love, 1 John 4, 8. But it's also true that He is a God that has made these statements. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, as Paul addressed that letter to the Thessalonians, these rather chilling remarks were made. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. And obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Those were the statements you see made by an inspired penman. And he said, The Lord's coming back, going to take vengeance on some... Who are the ones that will receive His wrath and His vengeance? Those that didn't obey the gospel and those who don't know the Lord. That's what Jesus, in fact, proclaimed, wasn't it? What a dangerous supposition to suppose that all is well for everybody when it's not so. In fact, didn't Revelation 20 give us one last viewpoint toward that? making mention of what, in fact, will happen to not only the devil, but all those that are his followers, cast into a lake burning with fire and brimstone forevermore? Maybe finally, there are those who suppose that you really don't have to do anything to be saved. Just live a good, clean life with a degree of morality, Just don't kill anybody, don't murder anybody, don't kidnap anybody, don't commit adultery with anybody, and you should be all right. Shame on you. Shame on anybody that would think that. If that's all that's needed, why in in the world did our Savior go to the cross? Anybody could live like that. And yet the Lord went to the cross to cleanse sin because there was no other way for it to be done. Supposing is dangerous. Don't suppose. May you and I so conduct our way obeying the gospel as it's revealed to us and do so with fervor and with excitement and with a degree of great loyalty to the revelation of truth. These suppositions bring us to this point. Eternity is at stake. Heaven or hell is at stake. Those eight occasions earlier, all the suppositions turned out wrong. All of them were advised. Today, many are making suppositions like what we've stated today. Supposing of the number of faiths, supposing the number of churches, supposing obedience isn't required, supposing baptism isn't needed, and on and on the list goes. And just like those first eight, all of these two are incorrect. They're all ill-advised, and we know that because the Bible teaches differently. Today, where do you stand before the God of heaven? Are, are you making suppositions Have you made ill-advised and unfounded ones religiously that are now bringing your soul to literally hang in the balance of eternity? If so, why not come down this aisle today? Why not beseech the prayers? If you have already been baptized, request the prayers of brethren on your behalf and don't suppose any longer. Maybe you've never been baptized. Maybe you've never yet rendered initial obedience to the commandments of the gospel. Jesus, with an arm, is reaching out to you today. He wants you to reach and take hold of His hand. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open and come into me, and I will sup with him and he with me, He wants you to be a part of your life. But He won't force His way in. He wants you to invite Him. And you do that as you obey the gospel. The gospel plan of salvation requires that you believe with all your heart that Jesus indeed is the Christ, the Son of God. But beyond that belief, you then turn from sin in the act known as repentance. Furthermore, you have an excitement to confess verbally in the hearing of others the faith that you now have. And then you're simply and humbly immersed in water for the remission of sins. That was told to those on Pentecost in Acts 2.38. And baptism is still said to be the saving matter in 1 Peter 3.21. This very day, if we could assist anyone in this audience... It would be our delight, it would be our joy, and what a great day of celebration and rejoicing for you it would be. If we could help you today, don't suppose, but why not know? And if we can help you, why not come while we stand and sing?